We are in Genesis 2 this morning. I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 and verses 15 and 16. So hear God's word. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Go and have a seat. Uh, thanks, Andrew. And uh, let me add a welcome as well. My name is, is Tim, and I serve as uh, one of the pastors here. And really glad to have you with us. Um, and if you want to turn to Genesis 2, that's where we'll be. Um, this morning, the text will uh, will be in, and if you're a kid and you didn't grab one of our Kids Connect, you can grab one of those, follow along the sermon. It's, uh, it's your level, uh, level color, do whatever you got to do um, to follow uh, follow along. And just to add kind of a quick word to, to Andrew and the Children's Ministry Volunteers, when we launched uh, about two and a half years ago, we had about 35 kids come with us, but we had about 35 kids to start on Sunday morning. Um, this morning, we'll probably have about 60 uh, back there, which is, is a huge number, a huge jump, and so... Uh, so we just we always need help um, back there, which is why we annoy you so much about that. Um, but we love you guys and are grateful for the ways you engage with us. So before we jump in uh, for Genesis two, let's pray, and uh, and and yeah, see what God has. Uh, Father, your Psalm nineteen says that that your law is perfect, and that when I listen to it, it revives my soul. God, that your precepts are right, and when I listen to them, they rejoice my heart. And yet, God, so often I don't listen. And so I don't have joy. I don't know what's right. Um, I feel lost. And so now as we, as we pause, and God, all of us have things we're navigating in life, questions we have, things we're not sure about. Um, would you just reveal yourself to us as a God whom we can trust? We ask that, we plead for that, we ask that in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Well, there's one word I've been hearing a lot in my, my house lately, which is uh, the word why. We have three kids, five, uh, three, and two, and they love asking this question. And so several times through the last few months, my two-year-old Abel has, um, has smacked one of his brothers in the face really hard. And we'll, we'll say to him, like, Abel, you can't, you can't smack your brothers, you can't smack anybody in the face. And he'll just look at us and go, why? And we'll explain to him, um, because he needs a reason not to hit his brothers in the face when he has so many reasons to hit his brothers in the face. Um, and driving home from Razors on, on Tuesday night, uh, we do Razors at another church building. They let us use it for free. It's just, they're really generous. It's really nice. Um, and as we're driving home, uh, our three-year-old, Micah, he yells up at the front um, at us. He goes, why, why does Naya go to churches? I was like, what? He said, why does Naya go to churches? I think I said, okay, she comes to church with us here and, and to there to Razors. So I told him, Naya's a pastor like me. We work together at church. Um, we help serve um, God's people together. And, he, and I could tell, like, Naya's comparing Naya and I in his head. He's, like, thinking things out. And he just says, Naya can do whatever she wants with her hair. <laughs> I was like, what? What do you mean by that? And Micah just consoles me in the moment. He says, Papa, you don't, you don't have any hair on your head. Like, thanks um, for that. Uh, but I'm having like, so just some interesting conversations uh, these days around this question, why? And the question why is a question that is at the center of a powerful cultural narrative that we, we live by, that we tell ourselves as a culture. 
what we've done over the last few weeks and we're going to do over the next couple weeks is we've looked at powerful like cultural stories our culture wants to live into, ideas that they're, they're selling um, to us. And what we try to do is say, okay, here's, here's how the gospel responds to that story. Here's how the Christian res- uh, story responds to the stories that you hear day to day in our lives. And the story we're going to look at today, the story that has this question why behind it, is the cultural story, I decide what's right. My two-year-old gets it, right? Don't, don't tell me what to do. Sometimes I just got to hit a brother in the face, right? This is just, don't t- why would I not hit my brother in the face? And, and you get to be an adult, and the question uh, is different, but the, the spirit is the same. I decide what, what is right for me. No one can tell me what's right, what is wrong, but me. And so how, do the, how does the gospel respond um, to that storyline? And I, I think where I'd start is actually surprisingly affirmative in, in some ways. In that first, I think what this story reveals to us, uh, I decide what's right, is our culture is, is a culture very committed to, to goodness, to moral goodness. That everyone, I think, agrees that we should strive to be good people. And our culture puts enormous pressure on people to defend human rights. And um, um, there's enormous pressure uh, to, to conform to, to not being a racist and to being a good person, to doing good in the world, and it's not just that we expect individuals to be good to those around them. We also expect businesses to be good. For businesses, not just to make money, but to make a difference. And so, for example, uh, Google's motto, uh, one of the largest companies in the world, uh, Google's motto is not like make a really great web browser. It's, Google's motto is don't be evil. Do the right thing. Right? This, this runs deep within us. And so the, there's a popular show on HBO called uh, Silicon Valley. And they've sort of mocked this tendency within tech companies and companies uh, within our world that, that it's just companies talk so much about how our, our product's going to make the world a better place. And, and so there's this, this scene from the show where uh, several tech companies are pitching their company. And as they're pitching their company, they want people to know, like, we're not just, we're not just producing new algorithms. We're making the world a better place. So take a, take a look really quick. Right? You can't just be a company. You have to be, you have to be so low, right? You have to make the world a better place. And, that, and that, even though that's, that's, I think, worth mocking in some ways, it's also like it's a sign of, of who we're trying to be as a culture, which is, is good. Like do, to, to not just make money, but to make a difference. But that's admirable. That we expect people in our culture to be committed to human rights, to human dignity, to justice. And that's not true through most of history, that throughout most of human history, human life was regarded um, in some ways as cheap and disposable. Um, but for the most part, that's not true in, in our day. There's a deep concern for justice and for the vulnerable and, and for good to be done. And you just look, you think about the last couple of weeks in our own culture, the outpouring of generosity towards the flood victims in, hum, uh, in Houston, uh, Hurricane Irma, the outpouring of generosity to the victims of, of Hurricane Irma, like, I decide what's right doesn't just mean, like, I'm going to decide whatever's good, but it also means, like, I should do good. I should be doing what's right. I should be living out what's right for others. So we can affirm that as Christians. I think we can affirm this commitment to justice, 
and goodness that we see in our world today broadly. And yet, there's, there's a darker side to this cultural narrative. And that gets back to my son hitting his brothers in the face. We may, we may be committed to moral goodness, but we don't have a why for why we should be morally good. We've lost the why behind moral goodness. And this is what happened in, in Genesis 2 with Adam and Eve. And, and maybe as you read that story, you felt the way that I felt when I, I first read that story, which is why would God put a tree in the garden Adam and Eve are not allowed to eat from? That seems just like cruel um, and unusual. It's like me putting a cookie in front of my child and saying, don't touch that, right? Like it just, it just seems mean. So why, why, is it, why is it there? And we'll answer that, that question. But before we answer that question, we need to understand the whole context. That's not the only tree in the garden, in other words. And so here, verse 9 again. How God lays out the garden for Adam and Eve. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There are three things going on in in this verse 9. First is there are a lot of trees in the garden which we're told are are good for sight and pleasant to the eye. In other words, they they bring pleasure. There's all kinds of trees with all kinds of leaves and all kinds of fruit for for Adam and Eve to go and eat. And second, there's, there's a tree of life in the garden. And commentators disagree about what exactly this means, but what we know it means is that, that God put something there so they did not have to die. They, they, were, they had access to fruit that meant they would live and never taste death. And once we, once we hear about these two things, the, all these trees for fruit and this tree which gives life itself, then we hear about the third tree, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so why put this tree here? Why put a tree where God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat from it, you will, you will die? Well, to answer that question, we first, we have to understand what, what does it mean, the, this phrase, Hebrew phrase, the knowledge of good and evil? And it means a, a few things. The first, it, it means to, know, to have knowledge of good and evil means uh, to know what prospers life and what destroys life. To know what is right and to know what is wrong. To know what flourishes human beings and what destroys human beings. It means to know... Um, what the wrong path is, and to know what the right path is. And when I I put it like that, it sounds like almost like, well, you should eat from that tree. You need to know what the right path and the wrong path is. But that's not what's going on here. Adam and Eve already had the knowledge of what the right path and what the wrong path was. That to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil did not mean Adam and Eve would then suddenly know what is good and what is evil. To eat from the tree meant they would now decide what is good and what is evil. They would decide what is right. They would decide what is wrong. And more than anything, God would not be the one to tell them what was right or what was wrong. That, that I will decide for myself. And so this cultural narrative, I decide what's right, kind of enshrines the, what the Bible says made everything go wrong for us. Everything broke for us when we started saying, God, I will decide what's right and wrong myself. And I realize in some ways that feels like a freeing move, but I, there are three things that, that happen, three things you lose when you start deciding for yourself what is right and what is wrong, and you remove God from the equation. Um, and the first, which is sort of the whole point of what we're saying here, is you lose the why. You lose the why behind moral goodness. That when Abel hits his brother and I tell him no, and he asks why, the reality is we're living in, we're living in two different universes. Right? He lives in a universe where you don't need much of a reason to hit a brother in the face. Just about any reason could be good enough to hit a brother 
in the face. I, on the other hand, live in a universe where you should not hit a face, a brother in the face, for no reason whatsoever. Right? And so why? Who's right? And, and who, who has the better ground, my two-year-old or me, for why hitting in the face is wrong? I broaden that discussion out for a second. It's something more serious, or hopefully more serious. Um, our culture broadly agrees that racism is wrong. Why? To throw the annoying question I've been getting nonstop from, from my children to you. Why is racism wrong? That what makes your view of culture and races superior to other people? That if you get to decide, if we all get to decide what is right or wrong for ourselves, why can't a racist do the same thing? That what gives us the right to tell them, no, you're wrong, you shouldn't be Racist. That, that if, if we're all sort of determining for ourselves what is right and wrong are on our own, why do we get to say to anybody else, no, you can't think that. That, that is wrong. And the best answer to that, that question I've heard from our own culture, and I'm, I'm going to bore you for a minute, some of you, so I, just, I apologize. But, um, but the way our culture has thought this out is, well, if you don't have a God, then we get morality through something called uh, herd instinct. Um, and the argument goes something like this. Through evolution, um, we now intuit that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, like racism, for example. And the reason we think racism is wrong is because we wouldn't want people to look at our race and decide we can, they can trample on our rights, they can push down our rights, they can, uh, they can say we're, we're la- we have less dignity than, than they do, and therefore trample us. And so because we've, through evolution, de- uh, created this, this sense where well, all races are equal so my race won't get trampled on, that's why we think racism is wrong. The only trouble with that is, is we could have just as easily evolved into saying, well, this one race is wrong. In fact, we did that 200 years ago, um, and, or 400 years ago. Like we, we could have evolved in a very different way. That In, in that story, um, an evolutionary grounding of morality, um, and you push people like Dawkins, they'll, they'll, they'll acknowledge this. Um, it's not ultimately, racism is not ultimately objectively wrong. We just prefer not to be racist. It's not morally wrong, it's just we preferred and evolved into something different. You lose the why. When, I, when, you, when, when we ask the question, why is racism wrong, if you don't have a God defining human beings as made in his image and, and, and worthy of dignity and value regardless of how they look or appear, unless you have that, you lose the why. You lose the grounding to say, no matter who you are and what culture you're from or what you think, racism is always Wrong. You lose the why. That's the first thing you lose. But the second you, you thing you lose is, is human dignity. Because most of us are, are probably are deeply morally held convictions we've not thought out on a rational basis. And that seems like an insult. It's not. It, rather, what tends to happen is we get passionate about something. We feel something's true. And so we just we hold to those moral um, beliefs. And so rather than saying racism is wrong because God condemns racism, we would say, well, Racism is just wrong. I mean, just look at how evil it is. Look how bad it is. And um, it stirs up emotions in us when we see certain images. But, but this, according to uh, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, this actually doesn't work, and it's very inconsistent and leads to, to trouble. That when we passionately pursue our moral positions without grounding, without a sense of, here's why I believe what I believe, when we just pursue morality because we're passionate about something, um, he, says, he says this about our passionate pursuit of morality and justice. He says, but our, our moral positions are not in any way grounded in reason or na- the nature of things, but we ultimately just, uh, but are ultimately just adopted by each of us because we find ourselves drawn to them. 
And what he's saying is we, we actually, we don't, we don't think about why racism is wrong. We just, we just know it's wrong, and we intuit that it's wrong. And actually, according to Taylor, that's had a devastating effect on our culture, because we're not, we're not basing our moral positions on a source. And when we do that, we actually can't have a rational conversation with someone else. We're, it's just passion flying back and forth with one another. And all we can do when we disagree with someone is shout them down. And this, to me, explains a lot of our cultural reactions right now. On the one hand, we say, I decide what's right. I know what's best. And on the other hand, when someone disagrees, we, we can't even process that, and so we shout them down. And one of my favorite uh, kind of Internet memes going around right now, I don't know if any of you grew up with the little golden books um, that I grew up with, um, like kind of little children's moral lesson stories. Well, there's a, an Internet meme going around. Um, it's a little golden book, and it's, um, everyone I don't like is Hitler. A child's guide to online political discussion. And that, that right there, that's a really easy way of, of explaining Taylor's complex moral philosophy, um, which he's saying the reason, the reason we treat people like this is because we just, we just believe in moral positions because we're passionate, not because we've asked why. We're drawn to them, so we adopt them without grounding them anywhere. And the result is we, we don't treat pe- people who disagree with us with human dignity. Right, if I decide what is right, what happens is everyone I don't like is Hitler. Yeah, I mean, you see this play out. Like, people with disagreements literally calling, you know, if they, if they argue long enough, it gets to the Nazis somehow. And sometimes it's true. Sometimes there actually really are Nazis. I, I want to be clear, which is why this inability to discourse or talk or have a grounding for why we believe what we believe is deeply problematic, according to Charles Taylor. And I think that's worth even for us to pause for a minute, for me at least. And to ask myself the questions, how do I treat people who disagree with me? How do I respond to people who see the world differently than I see the world? Do I let them challenge the groundings for my own morality? Or do I, am I just passionately pursuing a certain course of life and I just try to shout them down? Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, but wait a minute, Tim. People who are religious, who have a moral grounding um, from God, they treat people who disagree with them with disrespect and they shout them down. And you're right. The reality is all of us have taken fruit off the tree. All of us think we can decide what's right. And sometimes we, we use God to justify what we think is right and wrong. And, or sometimes we just, it's just our call. It's just our thing. But that's the last point of the sermon. We're not ready for that yet. If, if you're living into the story, I decide what's right. You lose human dignity. You treat people um, who disres- or, or disagree with you with, with disdain and aggression um, you lose the why. You can't, you can't give a why for why you believe certain things. But then thirdly, uh, and this I think is most important or most compelling to me, is if, you're, if we all ultimately are deciding what is right and wrong, we lose the good ending. And there was an article uh, someone sent my way not too long ago uh, that was titled, Scientists Discover That Atheists Might Not Exist, and that's not a joke. Um, here's how the article uh, starts. Written by an atheist, someone who's not a Christian, doesn't believe in God. This is, while militant atheists like Richard Dawkins may be convinced God doesn't exist. God, if he's around, may be amused to find out that atheists do not exist. And here's here's what he means by this. He he points out that all of us kind of intuit certain um, truths that that assume there is is more to the world than what we can see. So, for example, uh, um, one reason why the author gives for this is is Harry Potter. Uh, More specifically, like children's stories, children's Narratives. So think of all the best children's stories you've read, whether it's The Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, um, name, the, name the children's story. Um, but what happens in all those stories? 
Well, this is what this author says. Again, not a believer in God. He says, it's clear that in almost all fictional worlds, God exists. Whether the stories are written by people of a religious, atheist, or indeterminate beliefs, it's not that a deity appears directly in tales. It's that the fundamental basis of stories appears to be the link between the moral decisions made by the protagonist and the same character's ultimate destiny. The payback is always appropriate to the choices made. If a tale ended with Harry Potter being tortured to death and the Dursley family dancing on his grave, the audience would be horrified, of course, but also puzzled. That's not what happens in stories. And what the author says is, why, why do all stories end with justice, end with salvation, end with death overcome, end with the good winning over the evil? Why does every story like that end that way? And he said, his, his answer is because we all believe in God, even though he doesn't. He said the reason is because when you get down deep enough, none of us are atheists. That the Christian story is very different than the story I decide what's right. Because if there is going to be justice if the, in the end, if there's going to be a world made better, if there's going to be salvation, if racism is finally going to be trampled out once and for all, if this world is ever going to be, become the place you and I want it to be, we'll never get there. If each and you and I are all deciding what's right for ourselves, we'll never get there. That we need, on point three, we need a lawgiver. That I would say there's a reason why our culture is so drawn to positions of justice and, and righteousness and goodness and care for the vulnerable and human dignity and human rights. There's a reason we care for these things and we speak about them passionately. Whether people believe in God or not, there's a reason our culture is so committed to doing good. It's because we're made in an image of a God who cares deeply about all of these things, about the world functioning the way that he wants the world to function. And so the reason we care about justice is because we're, we, we're created by a God who spoke through the prophet Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We're created by a God who sent his son into the world, Jesus. And the first thing Jesus said, the first sermon he preached, he pulled out a Hebrew Bible, he went to Isaiah 61, and he spoke these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the prisoners, Recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus closed that scroll up, he sat down, and he said, that, those words are about me. He's saying, I, I am good news for the poor. I am release for those who are oppressed. I am here to bring favor on those who are forgotten and not heard from. And the question I, I, I ask when I hear Jesus say those words, and I think about my own longings for justice and righteousness, I ask, how are we going to get that world? And I think the answer is only if there is a lawgiver. Only if there is, like, like a children's story, our own story is being guided and narrated and, le and led towards just justice, led, toward, led towards salvation, led towards righteousness. And yet, if, if all of us just decide for ourselves what is right, if there is no lawgiver, there cannot be a good ending. How can we know in the end Harry Potter just won't die and the Dursleys won't dance on his grave? How can we know that? How can we know that Frodo will get and, and get to the end and, and good will triumph over you? How can you know that? Because, listen, you look at this world. There's plenty of evidence that good people uh, lose and, and do die. How do you know in the end justice will happen? How do you know in the end justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever 
flowing stream. If there's no lawgiver, if there's no narrator to our story, if there is no God, you, do, you cannot say that's where we're headed. And so if you and I, if we're going to step out of a world, a story that says, I decide for myself what is right, and into a story where we let, we let God determine for us what is good and what is evil, it requires two things from us. At first, you have to be willing to embrace your weakness. That when God put Adam and Eve in the world, he placed them in a blessed world. A world with a lot of potential, a world with a lot of pleasure available to them, a lot of joy, a lot of potential. And so God made clear to them, you have to, you have to trust me to navigate this world. You have to let me define for you what is good and evil. Because while there is much good available to you in this world, there is also much Evil, there is a serpent out to destroy you. And so their response to God and all of our responses to God ever since that moment has been, no, I will navigate this world for myself. I will decide what is right and what is wrong. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of our position in the world. We do not actually truly deeply know what is right and wrong. And we can intuit some of those things, but... What's your plan to end racism? What's your plan to end poverty? What's your plan to put together back everything that is broken in this? You start asking questions like this, and don't you feel your inadequacy, your weakness? We want to act. We want to see the world become a better place. And yet, what can we actually do? There's a lesson I've been learning um, a lot lately, and it's, it's either from the Bible or the movie Dirty Harry. I can't remember which, but uh, it's a man. A man has got to know his own limitations. I mean, if that's not in the Bible, it probably should be. Um, and when I live out of this, this story, I decide what's right. I, I don't have limitations. I know what's right. I know what's best. I can navigate my way through this world, and that, that is just foolish. Because what do I, I mean, what do I know, like truly? Right? What's my plan to, to end death? What is my plan to make sure the poor have good news to preach to them? What, what is my plan to make sure that the blind will see one day? It's time for me to step away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because I cannot decide what is right. And even if I could decide what is right and wrong, I could never make what is wrong right. And I want to be clear, that's not a call to inaction. Right? Embracing your weakness doesn't mean you can't do anything, so therefore step back. No, embracing your weakness means understanding our place. It means to step back from the, tr the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, us deciding what's right and wrong for ourselves, and stepping back to the tree of life, to come to a God who never intended injustice or racism or poverty or vulner vulnerable human beings or forgotten or voices of, of cried out from human beings who were ignored. He never intended any of that. That's a world you and I made when we started deciding for ourselves what was right. We step away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We step back to the tree of life, which is a dependence, right? A, a position of dependence. God, the only way I live is if I keep coming to your tree and eating from your word and, and dwelling with you. So embrace your weakness first. Um, and second is trust the word. Right, we all, I hope we all have passions for justice and care for the vulnerable, poverty, all of these things. And so where do we take those things, right? How do we know what the right action is? How do we move from a place of just stepping back and understanding our weakness to being people who can make the world a better place, as cheesy as that sounds? And my answer to that is it's the scriptures, it's the word of God. But that's why, I've, that's why we preach from the Bible every week. It's why I've given my own life to understanding this 
this world. And, and what I would say is if, if the Christian belief about the scriptures are true, then it means the scripture, are, they're ultimately, they're not the product of a particular culture, even though they were written from within a culture. And you see this happen in the pages of scripture. They, they, both, they both speak comfort to each culture, and they also confront each culture. And so one example from the Hebrew scriptures, the, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah confronted people in his own day who thought, well, we've got the temple, and because we do sacrifices in the temple, God will never abandon us, and he loves us as long as we keep doing these sacrifices. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, no, you're wrong, and, and writes these words in Isaiah 58. He says, behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is this the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself. Is this not the fast I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free. And so, so Isaiah is both writing to a culture but confronting that culture with their own, their own treatment of the poor, their own treatment of the oppressed. And the same thing happens in the New Testament. In the letter Galatians, Paul writes to, to Christians and confronts Peter, an apostle, who was doing things that, that Paul essentially says were racist, that Peter was not letting Jewish people eat at his table. He was doing certain things to exclude himself from the Jewish people. And Paul says that is not the gospel. The gospel does not let you act this way. And so even though Paul's writing from within a culture, a Greco-Roman culture that was completely comfortable with um, racists separating and thinking themselves superior to one another, Paul says no. And this also means the Bible will confront our own culture. We'll push back against us in ways that feel wrong to us. And it's why our job as Christians ultimately is to wrestle with this word and let it be the foundational word to our lives. And I'll, I'll just, I'll get real for a minute. There are things in the Bible that I would not believe if, if I was not a Christian. So why believe them, right? That raises a question. Um, why trust this word? Well, it's not because this word affirms everything I've ever thought. In fact, I would say if you've read the Bible and it has never confronted you and changed your mind, you're not reading it right. I hope it's changed your mind. And so why let it confront us? Why let it, why let it change us? Why trust us? Why trust it? I think there are, there are two reasons for that. One is, go back to our children's stories for a minute. How, how can we know that Harry Potter, Frodo, right? pick your favorite, your favorite children's story. How can we know in the end they, don't, they won't just die? How can we know that? How can we count on justice making everything wrong we see in the world right now right one day? How can we count on equality in the end? How can we count on salvation in the end? I would say either if, if you believe in God but you're still trying to decide for yourself what's right, you're, still, you're giving up on the good ending. You're giving up on a lawgiver who knows what's right and what's wrong. And if, and if you don't believe in God, then you're giving up on a good ending. You're saying it doesn't matter whether or not Harry Potter dies or lives. The, the story in the end doesn't matter. But it, we feel like it does, don't we? We feel like justice should happen, should come. And that's ultimately why when this, when this word confronts me and says you're wrong, I trust it over myself. Why I will break with my own, my own heart before I will break with this word. Because this word promises me it can do something I cannot do. And so you read to the end of the Bible, the end of the story, and what John says he saw at the end of all things, he says this. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. I can't do any of that. Which is why when I come to a moment and this book confronts me, I've just decided I'm going to trust this more than I'm going to trust Trust that I can decide what's right. Because I can't make that ending happen. That's one reason. But the other, and I think this is more important, if you have a hard time trusting some things the Bible says, um, or if you have, have a hard time wrestling with, with the scriptures, studying them, making them the authority of your life, whatever they say, we have to remember that the word of God in the Bible story is not ultimately a list of commands we're supposed to make or obey. It's not, it's not a, a list of rules we have to keep in order to be saved. The word of God is not ultimately an impersonal book you're supposed to read. Ultimately, the Word of God is a person. And He became flesh and He dwelt among us. And He came to save us from a world of injustice and poverty. He came to restore our dignity, to forgive us and to make us whole. He came to die, to save you and to save me. And He ultimately, this Word, Jesus, is the reason why Harry Potter always wins, while Aslan always wins while Frodo gets to the end and evil always loses. He's the reason we keep telling this story again and again and again. He's the reason you want a world of justice and equality and goodness. He's the reason why we want racism to finally be eradicated one day. He's the reason why when you see something you find wrong, your blood boils, your pulse quickens, and your voice cries out. He made you for that world that you want. And the irony is the only way you get that world back is to embrace your weakness and to trust the word. He made you for that world that you long for. And he so wants you to have that world. He died on the cross to give it to us back. And so we are called to receive him, to trust him, and to get that world back. Let's pray. Father, the times I have not listened to you are, are endless. And so, God, I, forgive me for the many ways that I, I am not faithful to what, what you say to do and who you say I'm supposed to be. And yet, I thank you in this moment for each of us as we wrestle with who you are, your word, God. We, our salvation is not based on how well we obey you, on how well we listen to you, on whether or not we eat from one tree or another. Our salvation is based on the fact that you, you gave us Jesus put right all that we made wrong, to give us justice and hope back. And so in this moment, God, we don't, we don't plead our own causes. We don't, we don't come and plead our rightness or our, our wisdom. We come and plead the blood of Jesus and Jesus alone, who saves us from our sin and makes us new and gives us hope. So God, fill us with that hope, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.